Hi, and welcome back to Undisclosed. This is our continuing coverage of the HBO series, The Case Against Adnan Sayed, and today we're going to be talking about the final episode, Time is the Killer. My name is Rabia Chaudhary. I'm an attorney and author, and I'm here with my colleagues, Susan Simpson and Colin Miller. Hi, guys. Hey. So this episode, this is a, a big, hefty, very emotional episode, and uh, it starts off fairly early on with... News that, by the way, was news not just to many viewers, but most people who actually know Auntie Shamim, Adnan's mother. And that is the fact that she was diagnosed with leukemia about, I guess it's been, I don't even know, a year and a half ago. I'm not sure. I've lost track of time. But the day that I found out, which was captured in the episode, I I had no idea what was going on. And I'll be honest, I yelled at the... (laughs) I yelled at the documentary team. I was like, like, I think everyone knew that was happening. (laughs) Auntie, there's so many of us. There's hundreds of us who are going to, I mean, like watching and who are going to be there. So many people are coming today. And just three months ago. Gala. Diman Gala. Gala. I don't know. Gala, Auntie. What happened? You want to go to the other room? Huh? I don't know. What? I'm so, what are you saying? Can we just cut this for a bit? Please? It's not written. No, I, I don't. Uh, no, I, come to the other room. No, I, no, it's all right. Just don't. I was like, stop filming. And, and they actually told me, okay, we did. We stopped filming. But, and then I but said, then I and afterwards, again. well, afterwards I was like, I, want, I don't want any of that in there. Um, and nobody listened to me. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> and so anyhow, but since that time, Auntie Shmeen was like, I knew and her husband knew, and nobody else knew, and uh, that was a re- that was really hard to sit on that for all this time. Not Yusuf, not Adnan, not her oldest son Tanvir, um, nobody, none of her good friends. So you know when you know Susan and I attended um, a viewing of the, uh, an early viewing of of the episode this past Thursday that HBO organized, and there were a lot of people in the community who were there. And I say, I mean, Aunt Shamim's community from the mosque, uh, and everybody was shocked because they had no idea either. So everybody found out for the first time there. I mean, it was kind of emotionally brutal the way they, and I mean, just narratively gut punching when they did it with having a non talking about his comparison of being. Um, wrongfully convicted oh. with having a terminal illness, and you know that at that point he does not know how close to home know. that is, and how his mother was saying the same things he was talking about. Everyone, everyone says in those circumstances. I know people who've had terminal illnesses, like stuff in prison. That's the only thing I can ever equate it to. To talk to someone when they first have a terminal illness is like, man, I'm gonna need it. You know, I'm gonna need it. And then eventually it comes to a point where it's like, man, you know what? I'm not gonna need it. It's gonna be me. Yeah, that was. Brilliant the way they juxtapose it because that's not something obviously that they coaxed out of him. That was his own, and and he loves making those kinds of analogies. That was his own analogy, but the way they transposed it with like you know footage of Auntie and Yusuf going to visit him that was that was pretty rough. But you know I was starting to panic up until about a month ago because Auntie still hadn't told him, and I and I was like, what are you doing? Like, and I and I kept saying. You can't. He cannot find out from the documentary. First of all, he will break free just to you know, <laughs> just to deal with me. He's gonna be like, "Why didn't you tell me?" And I and I told her. I said, "I'm not gonna allow that to happen. I can't do that to him." So you either you got to tell him. Or I'm gonna tell him. And she did. Thankfully, right before the first episode aired. So um, as for how she's doing, she seems to be doing okay. She's 
to be honest, she's like this little fortress. She doesn't tell you a lot, very much like her son, Adnan. Ask, you, ask her how she's doing. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. And it's hard because um, I've I've said give me get me the test results I can like you know there there I have amazing contacts I know some of the best oncologists and I, I just can't get any movement from her I've said I've got I'll go with you to you know for your follow ups and whatever but she's like no I'm 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 okay so but now that so many people know she's gonna have a lot of people on her about it which is good I'm I'm glad finally secrets out. No one really has time to go to the post office. You're busy. Who's got time for all that traffic, parking, lugging all your mail and packages? It's a real hassle. That's why you need Stamps.com, one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office and saves you money with discounts that you can't even get at the post office. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print out official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it off at the mailbox. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off for every first class stamp and up to 40% off for priority mail. Not to mention it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's no wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. Now in the last couple of months, I've done two amicus briefs to the Supreme Court, which required a lot of signers, a lot of paperwork, and a lot of sending of mail. And Stamps.com made my life so easy. And right now, my listeners can get the special offer for Stamps.com that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Undisclosed. That's Stamps.com, enter Undisclosed. So now... We find out that the filmmakers have been trying to speak to Jay naturally uh, for a few years now, and they finally got him to respond to them earlier this year, just in January, which is really cutting it close to this coming out. And it's interesting how they, you know, they can't record what he's saying, and 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 so and he won't go on the record, so they have to kind of just convey it with this these you know whatever captions as they compare it to what he said in the past. So, um, Colin, I'll let you. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, one thing I found interesting is, according to the Chiron, where they're summarizing what Jay told them, Jay repeats the story about Adnan loaning the car so that he can get a birthday gift for Stephanie. But then, apparently, Jay says Adnan told him to get 10 pounds of marijuana and then threatened to call the police if he didn't help Adnan bury Hay's body. Which, again, it's Jay, so he could be completely making this up. But when yeah, you sort of I'll take uh, this, things that didn't happen for $100, please. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's a certainly, but you sort of match that up with the phone call with Nikisha where he says he got busted with a lot of marijuana, and that's why he sort of informs, points the finger at Adnan. And again, you know, as Susan just said, this, this very well could just be completely fantasy in Jay's mind, but he does seem to have this story about a bunch of marijuana that's playing out in a few of these stories he's telling now, and it might be meaningful or not. Well, it's based on some truth. I mean, the 10 pounds thing is not true. Like, I will not believe that, short of like having films of him from 99 actually having Timothy marijuana. But there there was like a low-level dealing going on um, between like, I'm like high school kid stuff. Not, this is not 
calling it dealing is kind of a stretch, but like selling to friends, that was something that Jay and even Anand to extent was doing, like on a very tiny scale. Yeah. And then also, according to the summary, Jay repeats his story partially from the Intercept interview where he says the trunk pop was outside my house or my grandmother's house and not at the Best Buy. And then he says the Best Buy came from the detectives, which in the Intercept interview, he says he initially met up with Adnan at Best Buy, but then the trunk pop was at his grandmother's house. So that's a little bit different. And of course, historically, it's Jen who mentions Best Buy to the detectives. Jay in his first story says, no, the trunk pop is the strip off of Edmondson Avenue. And then later says it's Best Buy. And then Jen later tells the serial team, I never believed it happened in Best Buy. So, you know, we still have this lingering confusion of how does Best Buy come into the story? Who's the person? Is it Jay? Is it Jen? Is it the police who sort of initiate this Best Buy trunk? Well, didn't the ju- I mean, by that time, the police already had Hope Shop collecting answers to questions from other students, right? And so I, I thought it came up there first, but that's when oh, the police did. first. it did. But okay. like, in terms of how Jay got that story, uh, like Jay is pretty clear now. That's well, why I was he got it from the police. Yeah. <laughs> he got uh, it from the police. Well, the part of Jay's current, I mean, I don't calling him stories is almost a stretch because every, every time you talk to Jay, you get a new story. He's never said right. the same story twice ever in his life, as far as I can tell. And definitely not about this case. But the thing he says in his story, his current, like, in terms of like early 2019, his current story is that he did go to school at three o'clock to try and find a non and give him the car back, but couldn't find a non. Yes, which, that is... That was interesting. I mean, that's actually been... That's been... A, well, one theory a non had or suggested is like, did, did Jay come back to school at three and like run into hay? Yeah, that's what made me think about that. And I thought that was weird that he would say... But we also don't know what time he's talking about, like during the day. No, and, three o'clock. He says three o'clock. Oh, he does say three o'clock? Okay. 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 I missed that. But it's probably true because that's probably what happened because that's, you know... A school is done, and Nan might want to like run out and grab something for track, or just get his car back, and not have Jay have it for hours and hours. And also, and then like, what's what's the story? When does is it like the first inter- or second pre-interview where Jay talks about like his friend Jeff Jamita, Jamita, and how he takes him to school? Yes, the first pre-interview, he says he goes to school. Jeff takes him. He sees Stephanie. And so, yeah, that was I guess his very first initial story. The pre-interview, he does say he goes to Woodlawn High School. And he's gone all the way back to that once again. Um, and I will say, like, the conversations, obviously, they can't record them. But the conversations that Jay is having with people in the documentary, the way he talks is, like, kind of the same way he was talking to me. It's just the, the way he phrases everything is, like, he, he, he doesn't claim knowledge of the murder. He's like, well, in my eyes, Anand's guilty. Or I believe Anand did it. Or just, like, the way he talks, it's not a guy who knows. <laughs> Right. In my eyes. It's it's like he's telling us this is an opinion he has, not that I have witnessed this. I was there. That's how I have personal knowledge of it. But w- one thing about the 3 p.m. thing, what is he, is he trying to say now? I mean, maybe we don't know what he's trying to say, but so he's saying the 236 stuff, that is all bullshit. All out. All out. He, right. He can't be saying, I, I was called by him at 236. I went to go meet him at the time or whatever. And like that, that's everything's gone then from that afternoon. He is saying that he should call as a butt dial, <laughs> essentially. He is saying right. He is saying that he should because he can't be like I was looking for him at three o'clock, and also I was with him as we were disposing of the car at three o'clock. It can't be both. Um, but but he also basically because he's now said that, or at least in 2014, that he saw the the body later that night. That means the the burial time is gone too. Anyway, okay, all right, it's all gone. All right, so let's talk a little bit. They move into, and this was a little bit disappointing to me, but um, Eric Irvin, the turfologist, um, and, and the experiment that he Turf was physiologist. conducting. Turf physiologist? 
Oh, is that what that is? Turf physiologist, my future career. Well, God bless him, um, because <laughs> he he took the grass very seriously, and he eventually noticed something, Susan, you noticed years ago. But let's talk about this. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. So I was I I wish they had like a million hours documentary because I would love to just learn more about what they like the testing and like go into details. Even not even for the case. I feel have a feeling you're gonna be contacting Eric soon. <laughs> well, I, I from what from what I know, I believe his results are like they were. The answer is it is inconclusive. It seems unlikely, but it's not something you can say is definitively. It's scientifically impossible for the grass to have still been green, but it's not. It's also like you hear him say in, in episode two. It's like. That doesn't seem normal for this type of grass we got here, um, given the weather conditions. But it was not something that you could say with scientific forensic certainty. Still unlikely, just not ironclad proof. But he also points out that, like, okay, we'll also go back to the car. I mean, if you haven't seen the pictures or haven't seen them in a while, definitely go back and look and just look at the whole area. Um, And what he also points out, look at Hayes' car compared to the other cars around there and how there's just fresh dirt and leaves and, well, grass, I guess, in the tire treads of her car. Not the cars around it, the ones being, yeah, it's it's fresh, like, stuff there in the tires. Which seems to suggest that, well, he suggests it, I mean, that, you know, if there had been any kind of rainfall or a freezing and thawing, it would have, that would have been washed off. And the other, you're right, I mean, at least the car in the, in the episode right next to it, the tires are completely clean. Yeah. I haven't looked, gone back and looked at the other pictures, but that also made me think, I, I haven't looked, re, I haven't looked at, like, the weather day by day, and I wonder... If, is is that one way to kind of maybe get an, a little bit of a time frame of maybe within w- what period the car has moved there? Because well, it's hard to say how the like last puddles. We don't know that. I mean, it's. I mean, one thing no. we do. One thing we do know is that Hayes' car is parked in a way that whoever that car next to her is parked could not get out of his driver's side door. Right. So, it's, like, that's a suggestion that, uh, <laughs> like, it was maybe that night. Well, that well, the Hayes' car was there less long than or later in time than that car was. But yeah, so the physiologist, the physiologist is like, uh, okay, so a day, like maybe a week could still be there, but not six weeks, not six weeks. The car was not there six weeks. Yeah, I mean, like, Susan, I'd really like to hear more detail on Irvin's conclusion. Is this implausible but possible? Is it, I just have no idea. But yeah, I mean, I've always subscribed to the main theory about the tire treads and that grass being there and... That's the thing for me that always was the most confusing and confounding. And it almost seemed like it had to be a mistake that this photo had to be taken after they had moved the car a little bit in that lot because I just see no way that that's sitting there for six weeks when there's been rain and snow and ice and that that green grass would still be there on the tire treads. Or any grass at all. Like, it's it's the car was not there. I mean, I have a whole theory. My whole theory is that it was found in the county and moved because of the kind of documentation <laughs> that has emerged in the case file. Uh, I don't know if you guys have any other theories. I mean, we just can't know based on what we have. Like, in other cases, you can see where, like, cars, well, the cases I've looked at, cars connected to murders, have been found in Edmondson Village. And when they were finally located, not too long after they got there, by neighbors who reported it, um, the cops actually sat on the car for a bit, like, watched it to see if anyone came back for, like, a day and a half, two days. So the idea they'd find a car and not immediately seize it makes total sense because we know they've done that in the same time period, same location for other victims' cars. So it's possible that, like, they had seen it for a few days before this. We don't know where it was before then. Um, I kind of wonder if, like, it legit was, like, stolen by someone totally connected to anything involved in the murder. And that's how it ended up there from wherever it was before. Yeah, I mean, I would say for me, this is something where 
for Irvin's report, but also, you know, what happened with the helicopter pilot and everything we have. I mean, for me, this is sort of the biggest remaining thing. Everything else about Jay's story is just gone now. It's not only been lacking corroboration based upon, say, Christie's class at night, but also it's now dispelled. The one thing remaining that the state has is their story that Jay found this car. And so we sort of have an incomplete at this moment, but that's that's really what I'd like to delve back into at this point and see if we can get some conclusions on this. All right, so let's talk about, uh, they talk a little bit about um, Krista and Adnan staying in contact over the years and her, I mean, her album was remote. I was looking at that and I felt ashamed at the way I have his letters like stuffed into a... <laughs> I read it well that's falling to pieces. Uh, I've always been bad. I don't even have my first wedding pictures in an album, but anyway, that was 25 <laughs> years ago. Her and Adnan, and I think Krista might have been the only person from school who remained in touch with Adnan all over the years. And um, it was pretty amazing um, because at the end of the day, much like me, neither one of us, like she didn't know a lot about the details of the actual case, but I think she just believed he was innocent. You wonder how many people out there have been convicted of or are sitting in jail or waiting trial that the evidence might not be there. And they are away from their families and missing the real world for something that they didn't even do. And I think that's the saddest part. Um, and then obviously the other saddest part is that Hay is gone and we still don't know what happened to her. Um, and then we meet for the first time. It was so, <laughs> I thought it was... Uh, I kind of loved the way they they introduced Thiru in this and really taught and made the connections between his political aspirations and him prosecuting this case. Uh, and we're introduced to his former campaign manager, Sarah Dill. How unusual is that if he's a private attorney as a prosecutor pro bono? I've never heard of it. I think what it comes down to is he did it for the publicity. When he agreed to take the case, he had already made the decision that he was going to be running for office. I think he has his eyes on greater political ambitions. It's not about the law. It's not about justice. It's about making a name for himself. So Sarah had actually reached out to me a bit ago, and I then connected her to them. And I said, you know, if you if there's anything you want to talk about, you can. It's it's totally on you. Nobody forced her. Nobody even knew she existed. Uh, and she had left his campaign um, f for a lot of other reasons too. And you know, there, there have been ethics violations kind of complaints filed against his campaign. And and I know she knows something about that too, but she didn't really talk about that. She really was there just for one reason, and that was to point to the fact that it sounded like he had already made up his mind to run for district attorney, to run for state's attorney of Baltimore against Marilyn Mosby. And then he took the case because he thought it would help. Make a name for him. It did. I mean, he wasn't wrong. It did, but I, I'm surprised that he thought a case that got so much attention because it raised questions of a person's innocence would actually be good for him to prosecute. Seems like a stupid move. I guess in his mind, I mean, he believes it can show how good a prosecutor he is. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like the public has shifted a little bit about, uh, in terms of what they think a good prosecutor is. <laughs> well, I wish it shifted more, but I think it's not an un necessarily unsound strategy to think that showing that you, you can prove an ambiguous case was not ambiguous or something would be appealing to voters. I, he, I do think he probably misjudged this one a little bit, um, but I, I don't think the underlying theory back in 2015 or whatever was necessarily unsound. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it certainly, you know, there's the old line about no publicity is bad publicity and... Even even O'Keefe? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's... <laughs> 
It's something where, you know, it's it's one of two things and possibly both. One is that he's just a true believer in Adan's guilt and he wanted sure. to stand this case and as a matter of civic duty and wanting to uphold this conviction. That's what he claims, right? A progressive prosecutor for him is not only overturning bad convictions but upholding good ones. The other side of it is he certainly was running for DA and, you know, thought this would raise his profile. As is noted in the episode, this is kind of unprecedented what he was doing in the case. And I have a lot of issues looking through his record about prior cases where he's been the prosecutor and made misstatements and led to convictions being overturned. And so I don't have too favorable of an opinion of him. I can't say definitively what he was doing in this case, but haven't been too happy with many of the choices he's made during this appellate process. See, now those are harsh words coming from Colin Miller. <laughs> the harshest I've ever heard. <laughs> My favorite Thiru case is the one where he claimed uh, that the DNA evidence uh, was not pointing towards the defendant because the defendant carefully ca- cleaned off just his own DNA. That's amazing. See, the th- okay, here's the thing. <laughs> Whether or not he's a true believer, arguments like that and arguments he's made in this case show bad faith. That's the oh, thing. come it's on. Like, like, if he was a true believer, he wouldn't have to lie about his own high school experiences. Exactly. He wouldn't have to lie. But I also thought it was, I, and, I, and I was like very, you know, I thought it was brilliant of Amy to pop in that little clip of him in that interview where he, you know, he's challenged on his st- saying, I'm a progressive. I don't believe that, you know, like juveniles and life sentences have to look at. And yet he continues to for free prosecute a case in which he's trying to keep a juvenile defendant locked up for life. I mean, I don't know how he reconciles those two things. And that's a question that I don't think was, that, well, he probably just wouldn't answer because I know Amy tried very, very hard to get him on the record. And he just wouldn't talk to her. So I'd like to put a call out now. If you are an attorney or in the legal system anywhere in the U.S. and you've ever encountered a pro bono prosecutor of sort of like what's happening here, let yeah. us know. Because I'd love to, I, I just have not encountered that ever before. And I have not talked to anyone who has. I'm, I can imagine maybe it's happened somewhere in the U.S., but if it has, I haven't heard of it yet. So I'd love to know. And this is a case, you know, with the pro bono prosecutor, and we also had pro bono defense attorney, the pro bono defense attorney, which I think the trial back in 2000 would have gone very differently if Yurik hadn't arranged for Ben Arroyo to represent him and get sort of this sweetheart plea deal. And so both the trial and the appellate stage, Adnan was facing very unique circumstances in how these cases were being litigated. I'm curious to see, and I know as we continue to further litigate uh, Adnan's case, whether or not Thiru will also continue to represent the state. I just, I mean, there's Thiru, but there's also like, Frosh, what are you doing? (laughs) I mean, there's an entire other, you know, office of people above him who are are continuing to stick with this decision. And I I wonder if it's only because nobody else wants to touch it. I don't know what's happening. Yeah, I I think that's a safe bet is that many people don't want it for political reasons or just like professional or just like ease of life, don't want to touch the case. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have learned in the last few years that uh, one of the most important things for my health is getting a good night's sleep. And yes, this kind of became very obvious when I had a baby in my 40s and doing that was really difficult. But I've also noticed that, you know, just having enough energy, being productive, um, even like, you know, getting fit. I mean, it's all related to getting a good night's sleep. And one of the ways that I have pursued getting that good night's rest is by getting the kind of sheets that will help that happen. 
you don't need an expensive new mattress. Believe it or not, you could be sleeping better by just changing your sheets. And that's why you should check out Bowl and Branch. Look, every single thing Bowl and Branch makes from their bedding to their blankets is made from 100% organic cotton, which means they start out super soft and they get even softer over time. And you buy directly from them. So you're essentially paying wholesale prices for luxury sheets. And you know, luxury sheets are expensive. They can cost up to a grand in the store, but Bowl and Branch sheets are only a couple hundred bucks. Everybody who tries Bowl and Branch loves them. That's why they have thousands of five-star reviews and Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, and Fast Company are all talking about Bowl and Branch. And believe me, we've got a couple of sets and there are little squirmishes in my home over who gets to use them, which just means I need to get more. <laughs> Even three US presidents, by the way, sleep on Bolt and Branch sheets. Look, the shipping is free and you can try them for 30 nights. So if you don't like them, you just send them back for a refund. Think about that. You can sleep on the sheets for 30 nights. I can guarantee you're not gonna wanna send them back though. But anyway, there's no risk and no reason not to give them a try. To get you started right now, our listeners can get $50 off your first set of sheets at bowlandbranch.com using the promo code undisclosed. Once again, go to bowlandbranch.com today for $50 off your first set of sheets. That's bowl, B-O-L-L, and branch.com, promo code undisclosed. bowlandbranch.com, promo code undisclosed. So then we meet um, Dan Gorniak, a forensic pathologist um, who used to be, I think, the from DC Fulton chief County. medical examiner. From where? Fulton County, my hometown. Oh, now she's in. Yeah, now she's in yeah. Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, currently. Yeah, she was in DC before, and so so they talked about some things that were interesting. Now, obviously, um, you know, she, she confirmed the manner of death and the the, the cause of death um, as uh, you know strangulation and the manner of death. I think murder or homicide. So Tyler and Luke asked her some specific questions about the kinds of injuries we could expect if the state's narrative of the case, which is that she was killed in the car and she'd been struggling and she had her head pressed up against the car as she's struggling to, to save herself, what kind of injuries we'd expect to see. And, and she says that we really don't see any of it. And, not, and, and we've seen pictures of the inside of the car. There really isn't any evidence inside the car either of such a struggle. And also, let's go back to, the, like, they actually, I'm glad that for... They did quote extensively from the transcripts, which usually they didn't do. They used trial footage. They had it. But for the most part, the documentary did not, like, read off transcripts because that's boring as heck. They did here because what Murphy, the other prosecutor, argued at trial was, like, a very specific set of events about what happened. And, like, we know that the fight went down this way. We know the fight did this and this and this. And, like, it was a very, very vivid and clear picture that was allegedly supported by evidence. And it's just not. Like, that. that's, a like, a fantasy she came up with. And that story is specific, which is to say that the assailant is in the driver's seat and Hay was in the passenger seat which would line up with Adnan possibly driving the car as opposed to some other scenario. Yeah, and, and Dr. Gordon Ikira is clearly saying, well, no, these hemorrhages, they don't seem to line up at all with the theory that her head was sort of banged against the, the window, and that's what have led to these hemorrhages. Well, you know, she says something about, and I have to we'll go back and watch it again, even though I've seen it twice now, but I need to, I, I haven't quite understood what she was saying in terms of, she thought they were like post-mortem hemorrhaging, which means what? That maybe she was hit and then later it hemorrhaged in that area? It could mean that. I mean, she doesn't have the, like, all she has is the outer autopsy photo, so she does not have like the actual injuries to the head. But it, she was suggesting that because the injury didn't have all the parts of the injury you expect if it was actually a, a physical injury, it could be that some of the uh, like discoloration or other changes that were noted were not from an injury that was during life or even after death. It was just decomposition because what she was seeing was not consistent with the injury type that was being proposed. 
And, and then she talked about lividity. She explained how lividity works and comparing it to these diamond marks. They focus in on these double diamond marks, which is something that, you know, the three of us have been talking about for a while now. And um, and how, and this is really, really important for people, you know, the question of when she was buried, when she's left there, those marks could not have been fixed unless she had been on whatever, she had been laying on whatever created that mark for at least 10 hours. And there's nothing, not on her clothing, nothing in the park that matched those marks. So that is like that, and the defini- the other, the rest of the lividity pattern makes it definitive that she could not have been left in Lincoln Park at 7.30 that evening. I wish we had more time, well, for everything in, in the show, but I wish we had more time to talk, to have more time, screen time for Gorniak, because she was great. Um, but if I had like one narrative criticism of the documentary, it's that it doesn't do a lot of hand-holding, which I'm okay with usually, but like I would not have minded a little bit more in certain places, because it often seems like... They made a choice to leave viewers to make their own conclusions. They're not force feeding anything. They are not going to like spoon feed exactly what this means. They give you the the interviews and kind of leave it to the viewers to to understand the import. Not that they don't explain it at all. They do, but for Gorniak, what she confirmed is that the autopsy photos and the burial photos and what from the Dr. Corell's testimony. So she is buried. To give the recap validity for those who did not listen to the episode in a while, she was not buried on her her front surface. She was on her side, like hip to the ground, other hip in the air. She was not positioned in a way that could cause this kind of lividity wherever she was in Lincoln Park. But also we know that even if she had been laid out the, the right way in Lincoln Park, it wouldn't have mattered. It still couldn't have been done there. She couldn't have been left there because the lividity does not match where she was found in terms of the pressure marks, which are clearly noted in the autopsy report. And I find it impossible to believe that Dr. Carell, who's passed away since then, um, didn't understand the significance of this and why it made it impossible for Hay to have been buried when Jay says she was. Yeah, and, and connecting that up, of course, with other evidence, the Lincoln Park pings are the 709 and 716 pings. And then, of course, the main corroboration for Jay, which, of course, has been called into question after the Christie class schedule, is that they try to say the 804 and 805 calls to Jen's pager is Jay paging Jen. And then they meet in in Westview Mall. And that's when he supposedly says, we just buried hay and I need to wipe down these shovels or throw them in the dumpster, which, of course, if the burial isn't until 1030 at the earliest, well, this means the story is a complete lie. And, of course, that makes sense because with Christy having the wrong day, this whole sequence of events is set off by a phone call that Jen says she makes to Christy's place. But, yeah, the key to the lividity is it knocks out the Lincoln Park pings. It knocks out Jay telling Jen about this murder and burial sort of in the 8 o'clock hour on January 13th. What kills me probably more than anything in this case is Jay's intercept interview when he, well, tells the interviewer, I found out later she was probably not buried until closer to midnight. Oh, Um, my God. So, like, on one hand, why did the interviewer not freaking follow up on that? Whatever. Two, how does Jay know this? Like, this was, like, this to me is a clear indication that the obvious was obvious back then. Dr. Carell and the investigators and probably the prosecutor, they all knew the story didn't make sense. And somehow that was conveyed to Jay, who was also aware of the fact that the burial had to have happened scientifically closer to midnight. And Susan, tying back to what we discussed earlier with Jay saying that the police told me this happened at Best Buy. Well, that's also the intercept interview where Jay says, based upon information I learned later, the killing didn't take place in Best Buy. And so the follow up question on that, of course, is, well, what did you learn? Who did you learn that from about it not being at Best Buy? Yeah, I I thought 
he he made those comments in 2014, right? And so at that point, somebody is t- somebody who is following either nope. your guys blogging nope. or like nope. what's happening. No, wasn't out. Nope, it was out. It was out. No, it was out. No, it wasn't. No, that was, was twenty fourteen. The photos weren't had an interview. They were not. It was not out. But one of you had. I remember this. I remember this. The reason I remember this because I had to go chronologically and document how all this happened for the book. And I remember when I made the connection. And I'll go back and look. But it had already been discussed on social media or one of your blogs, and then it popped up in the interview. I distinctly remember okay. this. So we'll, we'll nail this down. It had to be close in time though, because I don't recall <laughs> was, that coming up to like. Early January 2015. It was. No, no, it was close in time. And it was also on the Reddits. It was. I, I absolutely remember. But anyhow, I'll, I'll go back and confirm um, because I remember having to piece that together um, for the book. Anyway, and I thought it was Yurik. I'm like, Yurik is probably still in contact with Jay, still telling him, now you got to make your adjustments. But yeah, I mean, like you said, Colin, this throws out anything that Jen has to say about that evening at the window completely. The autopsy report refutes all of it. All right. So they also discuss. well... They did not discover, they identified a potential source. What do you guys think about this? These concrete shoe mark or shoes or whatever they're called. I am hesitant to, I think it's possible that if we ever, if we could work backwards, if we found evidence of where she was killed and and kept, we we could then find possibly something at that scene that could link back to that. I do not think we have enough information necessarily to go the other way, to go from the markings to to finding an object. I think it's as a theory, it could fit. It's possible. I don't know how helpful it is to try and work that way around. I mean, it's ideas to look at and consider for sure, but it's not confirmatory of anything. You know, I put this call out, I think a couple years ago when I put on social media, I was like, look, we're just looking, you know, any suggestions. And I've gotten hundreds and hundreds of like tweets and pictures and DMs, people showing me like the insides of Camaro car seat covers and the trunks. And I mean, there's just so many things. And it's like, nope, 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 nope. And some things are clearly, it's like, you know, things that are like the negative impression. Nope. For the record, everyone out there, you can stop suggesting any kind of item that's not a solid flat surface. (laughs) Yeah. It's got to be a solid flat surface. That's true. And also, yeah. So it has to be, uh, it can't have any marks in it, right? No ridges or anything like that. It's a solid, flat, raised surface. I mean, I will say of everything I've, of all suggestions I've seen, this is probably the closest. Um, which is interesting, but I don't think it's, it rises to a level more than interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's something for me. I don't think you can reverse engineer it. It does seem like it's plausible that that could be the cause. But yeah, I think it's really tough to narrow it down and say it has to be this and it can't be anything else. On the other hand, I am as sure as anything in this case that I am sure that Alonzo Sellers is lying. I know it. I mean, obviously not to the point like I can like, there's no proof of it. But everyone knows he's lying. I mean, Massey knows he's lying. Everyone knows Sellers is lying. The question is why. So, yeah, there's definitely more to be learned there. Yeah. And I, I didn't realize that. I mean, it wasn't, they kind of showed it, how they just walked right and showed the school was right there. And that was, um. yeah, I don't know. I don't know how he could have intercepted her. And I don't know what he was doing on the 13th. And I don't think at this point anybody's ever tried to figure out what he was doing on January 13th. There's no, he, we have his work records. There's no clear alibi there. It's not like conclusive. And he also, I guess, kind of had the work thing where he could leave work too, right? So I mean, obviously, that. if he's going home middle of the day, have a 22. Yeah, he would just do jobs at Coppin State. It's not as if he would be constantly supervised during the day. Yeah. I think the one thing I've always thought, you know, from what we do know from her autist report is like, you know, whenever she was killed and she was left and she was lying on top of these objects for at least 10 hours, it has to be a place that a person could comfortably leave a body for that long and know that they're not going to be discovered, I assume, which seems to suggest like a private some kind of a private space. I don't know. What do you guys think? They would have hoped to have had one of those. I mean, you, you obviously would have tried to find somewhere that was private. I mean, 
We have zero evidence whatsoever that Hay was ever in the trunk of her car. And there's reason to doubt that part of the story is true. Because look at the trunk of her car. Like, it, there's nothing about it that makes it seem there was ever a large object in there. And they never tested it. Right. I don't think the police believed it because they would have tested it if they did. Alarm. The willies. Panic. There are dozens of words for fear, but just one for an exceptional home security company to stop fear at your front door. Simply Safe. Simply Safe is home security that knows it feels good to fear less. This is award-winning 24/7 protection that protects your home through it all, through blizzards, blackouts, and burglars. Simply Safe has won awards from all the top tech experts to count. The Verge calls it the best home security. It won Reader's Choice from PC Magazine. It's a two-time winner of CNET's Editor's Choice and a Wirecutter top pick. Simply Safe has no contract, no hidden fees, and no gotchas, and they always keep prices fair and honest. Thanks to Simply Safe, fear has no place in a place like home. Now, I've used several Simply Safe products over the past few years, including their security camera. It's the only security camera on the market with a built-in privacy shutter. It allows me from my iPhone or my iPad to watch my home 24/7, and it immediately alerts me when motion is detected on the camera. Simply put, Simply Safe makes me feel simply safe. And now you too can try it. Try Simply Safe with free shipping and free returns. You'll get a 60-day risk-free trial. Order now, and you can have your home protected within a week. Just go to simplysafe.com/undisclosed to get started today. That's simplysafe.com/undisclosed. Be sure to go there so they know what we sent you. simplysafe.com/undisclosed. All right, so let's get into one of the big reveals. It was going to be a reveal until Baltimore Sun decided to publish this, and then <laughs> Justin went ahead and tweeted it, and that's the DNA evidence. So there was DNA evidence that was collected, and we've known this for a while, in fact, in serial, that was never tested. And, uh, you know, when folks asked us over the years, me, Adnan, Justin, you know, why aren't you doing the DNA testing? There's a couple different considerations here. Number one, that the fact that the PCR proceedings were going well, they were going in our favor. And Justin, it was Justin's strategy to say, we're going to hold this until and unless we need it, because we might we might lose the PCR, then we might have to like play this card. But the other thing also was this, knowing that in the past, when defendants have tried to get DNA tested in order to exonerate themselves, it's taken years. The state Better will Better part fight. of a decade. Yeah. It, it took like six years for, uh, what was the name? Oh, goodness. Um Michael Bryant. Took six years for him to finally win in court the, the permission to test the evidence in his case because that's how hard the state can can fight. But anyhow, in this case, both the state and the defense came to an agreement around the time these plea negotiations were happening also in this episode, and we'll talk about that in a bit, to test some evidence, some of the evidence. I will say Justin's strategy has been 100% validated, though. The point yeah. earlier, like, why? Like, Adnan has a strong PCR petition going on. Why divert energy, resources, and attention to something that would take long or just as long or longer to actually accomplish and would divert your attention and force you to fight for it, when if you do well with the PCR, the state's going to have to give in and do it anyway, which is what happened here. Because this is not a question of, like, Adnan can just choose to test the DNA. He could not, flat out. No. No, only the state can do that. Only the state can say, oh, we're going to test it today and just do it. I mean, they can do whatever they want. But it also is validated because the state's response, which they told the son, basically, so what? I don't have the exact quote on me, but they said it doesn't prove his innocence. And so imagine if we had gone through that six-year, eight-year battle, and then the state says, so what? And that, that's the other thing. There's always this, I mean, it's been a long time. It's not clear that Baltimore police have a great 
method of preserving DNA evidence, or at least did not back then. So yeah, this was, I, I we, we hoped it was otherwise, but back in my head, I kind of always probably would have bet this is going to be the outcome. To the extent we even know the outcome, we'll get that in a second, the records are not totally clear themselves. It's a complicated question, and Justin does kind of allude to this on the documentary. But one of the issues here is like the DNA testing can, it could theoretically harm a non. So the you don't want to just rush into this. Um, the big concern in this case from the defense perspective is the car, um, Hayes' car, because we know from the forensics that were done that, guess what? Some of the non-stuff is still in the car. His fingerprints are still in the stuff in the car. His DNA was absolutely a thousand percent in her car, like unquestionably. In any universe we know of, his DNA was in that car. So if they did DNA testing of the car and it came back to a non, well, that's going to be used by the state to like do a victory lap. Be like, oh my God, he's so guilty. When it's evidentially, it's meaningless. Um, so that was one concern. It's like concern. finding Dawn's DNA in the car. I mean, that's yeah. her boyfriend or her brother's DNA in the car, right? I mean, it's just like anybody yeah. else who would become in contact with her. So it wouldn't matter legally, but it'd be a huge like victory for like the PR campaign from the state. So that was one of the concerns that they had. But that in the end, the DNA from her car was not tested. So that was that's how they kind of mitigated that issue. Yeah. So he 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 helps. I mean, he coordinate with them to decide what things would be tested, things that would be have more evidentiary value, right? If they if they had a DNA hit. So 12 samples were tested. Uh, let's start with the fingernails. Yeah, the big one. The one that, the fingernails were always the, just the biggest hope for a solid, conclusive answer in this case. It was, you know, it wasn't necessarily a very likely one, but like there was a real legit hope there that like there could be an answer that could tell us everything. There is not. We now know that. Um, the fingernails that were, fingernail clippings that were taken at the time of autopsy were tested. And for the one of the set of fingernails, there was nothing found. The DNA was just all belonged to Hay. And the other, we know that there was a contributor that was not Hay, but it was so small, just one section of DNA, one allele, that it's it's meaningless. In terms of forensic value, it has none. Like The fingernails themselves are also kind of a question for a few reasons, because the, the records about them are not always consistent. Um, and the question of why they weren't tested before has never been answered. Even the way they're described is so different from like report to report. For instance, we know that in the like original um, inventory sheets from the BPD, they describe this evidence as left fingernails plural and right fingernail singular, which kind of raised a question. Like, so you only have one fingernail from the right hand and multiple from the left. But then we have the most like in twenty nineteen or twenty eighteen, we have the forensic reports where they're going through the evidence and like documenting before they test it. And they describe how there were, um, from the left fingernail clippings, there were three specimens that were generally dirty. And for the right fingernail clippings, it says there were six specimens that were generally dirty. And specimen doesn't mean like a whole nail, it means just like a clipping. But that does sound very much like that was not just a single fingernail, so why can't they describe their evidence consistently? For me, the much bigger take home is this. We know from the 1999 um, testing that when they looked at the fingernail clippings, um, Salvador Bianca, the trace analysis unit guy, concluded that, quote, nothing of evidentiary value was detected. But then we get to this uh, report from the 2018 DNA analyst who, as she's going through and doing her initial observation of the evidence, taking swabs, she writes talking about how they were in 1999, the possible presence of epithelial cells was noted and no testing was performed. Okay, where is she getting that? Like, what data source does this DNA analyst have that told her this when the stuff given to the defense never said that? Yeah, I mean, this is something that's very much inconsistent with what Bianca said. And of course, if you recall back to 
our earlier episodes in Undisclosed, it was something where Bianca gave very inconsistent testimony about the hairs that were found on Hayes' body. And it wasn't really revealed in a clear way until between the first trial and the second trial that there are these two hairs found on Hay's body that were not a match for either Hay or Adnan. And yeah, Susan, I had the same question as you, is what is the basis for this conclusion? Because it very much contradicts what Bianca had said at the time of trial. Yeah. Well, what, what tells me is that there are some set of reports out there that the people inside BPD have access to that have never been handed over to the defense because that information is not included in the stuff that that should exist. And we just mentioned Malcolm Bryant, who spent, I think, more than six, actually, years fighting a DNA tested. In that case, uh, there were fingernail clippings that were um, allegedly recorded, or they were recorded as being destroyed. Officially, in terms of the evidence that was being disclosed, like the, the inventory records and whatnot, there was nothing there to test. That was a lie. They lied about it. They did exist. They did find them. They tested them. They did not match Malcolm Bryant. They matched the apparent killer. So, yeah, the fact that the BPD would lie about something like that, totally believable, because they were lying about it back then. It's the exact same time period. And by the way, that was also a, a Brit's case, same detective in this case. So, yeah, that's that's upsetting to me is that we now know that there was some kind of testing done on the fingernail clippings to determine that there were skin cells there, which, you know, not surprising, the fingernail clippings, but like to do that and to not record it anywhere and not to test it, why wouldn't they test it? And that goes to another item they tested now, and that goes to the Crown Royal bottle that was found very close to Hayes' body. This is another part of the DNA testing that's maddening to me. Sorry, it's not, what what I call it, Crown Royal? It was like Coronet something, some kind of brandy. Anyway, um, they did test the mouth of the bottle and the cap. Like, they took a swab of those things, and they determined scientifically from an analysis that there were skin cells on them. There were skin cells recovered from these items. And we know that those cells were recovered and retained for future possible analysis. Okay, where are they now? And why weren't they tested in 2018? Because in 2018, what they test is, again, the actual bottle cap and the bottle rim, but not, not the skin cells that were recovered and presumably preserved better, you know, 20 years ago. And what we know now is that from those, the bottle cap and from the mouth of the, the bottle, there was DNA recovered. It was just not DNA that a conclusion was reached about. Yeah, and that bottle was found in very close proximity to Hayes' body. Unlike the condom wrapper, so they did testing on the condom wrapper that had inconclusive results, but that was not found close to the body. But then, Susan, we have this other piece of evidence, which, like the bottle, was one of two pieces of evidence found very close to the body, 100-plus feet into Lincoln Park with no obvious path. And so then, yeah, what's the result on this rope or wire that they find by the body? So the rope has always been intriguing because it doesn't, I mean, it's not been like a focus necessarily because it's a bit ambiguous um, and we don't know much about it. So what we do know is that, uh, what, like, I forget the exact distance. It was very close, like within reach of where his body was. Um, There was this white rope-like material um, found on a rock laid out. They call it a rope in the way they log into evidence, but you can tell that description is not very accurate from the photos. And also from the fact that the 2018 DNA analyst, she actually writes in a report that uh, there's a section for like descriptive inaccuracies in the original inventory. And she writes, this item is described on Winace as a rope, but was found to be two pieces of tan wire. So yeah, it's not, it's, it's two pieces of wire. One is longer, one is shorter. We don't know the actual distances or lengths of them. You know, it, it's it's strange, but there's trash in Lincoln Park. That area floods sometimes. Stuff gets washed in there. What's shocking to me is that as far as we can tell from this report, which is very opaque in how it's written and very hard to understand some of the findings that are made, 
what appears to be the case is that this rope, this 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 wire, the smaller one anyway, is the only section where they found a full, complete profile that they could not identify. It was a woman, so apparently they could they obviously tested the X chromosome and found out it was a female contributor. But what I can't understand is why this object out of all of them would have a full profile. And that makes me think that it might have more significance than I previously would have thought. Because again, if this was an item that was washed in as trash, like years before it was put there, you'd think it was like the least likely place to find DNA. It, it would have been my least likely spot that I expect to find it. So just like so just so I can I can understand as somebody who's like does not understand how a lot of this stuff works. A full a full DNA profile could come back from what? From like skin cells? From probably skin cells. Spit from so skin cells is what we're probably looking at here. Somebody holding yeah. it. I mean, it could hands. be okay. spit, but like I guess that that's. I mean, and we can't rule it out, but I, right. I don't. Uh, that'd be hard to understand. So and and we know this is not haze. We well, we think we know it's not haze. I mean, the report is not written in a way to make it comprehensible. I mean, if it's so, un- unidentified. Isn't that mean it's not Hayes? Well, they didn't have a full profile for Hay either. So how how did they not have a full profile for the victim? I don't understand. Well, presumably because the DNA was degraded, and they had a blood card for her, but you know, either because of the condition it was when she was found, or because of how they stored it, they did not get a full profile from it. So at least theoretically, I don't think this is necessarily statistically likely from what we know. But at least theoretically, this if this is not a full profile, perhaps it like for this rope or wire, they found DNA that was not the, the sections that were recovered from the blood card, so it could be haze, but you wouldn't necessarily know from the testing. We don't know. The way the report is written just doesn't tell us everything, and that seems intentional, because why else would you write a report like this? You know, the other option, in any case, that you have to consider is the possibility of contamination. And we do know that from the chain of custody logs, there was at least one woman who handled the evidence briefly in the fall of 1999. You know, presumably all normal precautions were used. Presumably she didn't handle it differently from any other person involved in, like, moving the evidence. And lots of men were involved as well. But we can't, like, I guess ironclad rule out the possibility that a woman who was handling it as evidence managed to contribute to it. Breaking that down, we can't rule out that it's a woman who handled the evidence, but that seems unlikely we can't rule out that it is Hayes' DNA profile, but on other items they found the DNA profile was consistent with Hayman Lee, and obviously this one is saying unknown mm-hmm. female, so that's unlikely. We can't rule out that this rope or cord or wire was just sort of washed there, but that makes it seem odd given the full DNA profile. And that, you know, that leaves you with a pretty solid belief that this at least has some connection to either Hayes' murder or burial. Because, you know, all the other items besides the brandy bottle and this rope or cord are by the street. Those two items are within inches of Hayes' body. And so, you know, this seems at least like a possibly solid lead, but we just need more information to see what was found exactly and what can be done with it. Yeah, to me, though, it dramatically increases the chances that this was connected to the murder just because the odds that it was deposited close in time to when Hay was, was placed there just are much higher. Like the DNA to still be there suggests that there is a connection. But the, then again, we just know so little about what this wire was. That's what I was thinking. What is it? Like, it sounds well, so weird. Like, is it a little piece of rope? Weird. Is it a thick rope? Is it a, enough to strangle? It's like, what are we talking about here? To transport? It's a tannish, like, stretch. One's lo- we don't even know the length. So one's longer, one's shorter. And one's tied in a nice little, uh, what, like... But shorter is a weird way to describe it. Don't you think we'd have some dimensions in the report? Like, Oh, some- no. They, they just they called it a rope for 20 years, and it wasn't even a rope at all. So, yeah, that's... 
And here's what I want to know. You go to the photos from the crime scene and you could see the couple photos I did take of this stretch of wire, wires. We can't tell if it's one or two in the photo. And there's like clearly like a little white rectangular plastic doohickey that may or may not be attached to the wires as some kind of like cord harness or some kind of like connector, maybe. But like, why did no one pick up this like plastic rectangular doohickey that was possibly or seemingly attached to the wires? That was, again, like just a couple feet from the, the victim. That was never even logged in evidence, never described. And, and the way that they've handled the rope over the years, by calling it a rope, by not putting in evidence review by Gutierrez, which came in to look at the evidence, they've made sure that no one could actually know what the hell this thing really was. But we can know it now because it exists. I mean, they still have it. So maybe we could ask Justin to give us an actual description of it. Like, does shorter wire mean like a three-foot rope? Like, what, what are we talking about here? Yeah, well, the, the bigger one's definitely, I'd say, from the scale, at least a couple feet, maybe more. But again, you can't tell if that's like, actually two pieces of, of wire or if that's there's a smaller one out of sight you can't tell i mean i i assume from the report and is it really wire or is it rope i mean it's what it's not rope the rope's a lie it's a it's a wire it's a oh interesting it's definitely not rope. it is absolutely wire of some sort and again from the dna analyst uh, report in 2018 that plastic cup thingy was not picked up as well i've always wondered like did it also get attached in evidence and it's just not been described but it does not seem like anyone has ever picked up the plastic rectangular thingy which, again, if it's part of the wires, like, attached to it, I'm like, that gives us the clue what kind of wires these are. I would love to know what kind of wires they are. Could they come from a car? Could they come from, like, a ra- Like, I don't know. But that seems like an important question that no one's ever addressed because the report was designed to make the question not come up. Uh, well, uh, yeah, it has raised a lot more questions. And so, you know, hopefully we'll get some answers going forward from Justin. And maybe there's possibility for more testing, which is something I definitely want to talk to him about. So one reason why this report is so inconclusive and why we can't really draw many conclusions about it is because of the way it handles the DNA that was found that was more than like negligible, but was not identified as any particular person's DNA. We know that several items had DNA that was not identified to Jay and not or Hay, and that's that's kind of it. But the way the report's written, it allows for a very wide range of possibilities as to what was actually found here. Everything from the DNA was like more than nothing, more than like just a tiny, tiny bit, but not enough to really be forensically val- valuable. Or it could mean like we've got close to full profile here that could statistically be extremely valuable, could extremely be positive evidence linking that DNA to who contributed it but they just didn't have a contributor to match it to. So there's like valid info there. They just don't have a link or everything in between. And that's a very wide range of possibilities. I mean, if we knew that, for instance, like why why for the female DNA they found on the wire, why were they able to determine that there, but not for, say, the bottle cap or the mouth of the bottle? Why not for the, the condom wrapper? Did they know? Like, was there, in fact, a conclusion this was a male um, contributor, and they just did not include that in the report. And the bizarre thing to me is the way they kind of classify this evidence. They do this weird thing in the report where there's two different footnotes used to distinguish between like evidence where they don't reach a conclusion. They have two footnotes, footnotes one and two, and a third. But the third's about Heyman Lee and the partial profile there. But footnotes one and two, I cannot imagine a reason for why you'd need two footnotes to say we did not draw conclusions. Um, it's unnecessary, and it seems to suggest some sort of distinction that shouldn't have been drawn in the first place. And also the way the second footnote is worded is extremely unusual to me. I've never encountered that. As far as I'm aware, it's not a standard sort of language used in any DNA report in Baltimore or elsewhere. The first one is a sort of common, like standard language they use on tests. But yeah, to me, this suggests that there is something more going on. The testing found more than we currently know about. Uh, Colin, what do you think about 
how the state is now talking about like these results, because I was kind of shocked to read this quote in the Baltimore Sun, where the state basically says, so what? It doesn't prove his innocence, which, I mean, if somebody's DNA doesn't show up, isn't that evidence it is <laughs> in evidence. some way? It is evidence. It doesn't prove his innocence, but it, it's evidence. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely exculpatory Given the state's theory of how this strangulation took place in close quarters, given that they thought it was important to test this evidence, including evidence that was found on her or right by her, certainly the absence of anything connecting a non to the crime is exculpatory. I mean, in the literal technical sense, they're correct. It doesn't absolutely prove his innocence, but it's certainly evidence that A, undercuts their case and B, does reduce the likelihood significantly that he is guilty of this crime. So this could be legally useful how? It could be useful. So there's a few things down the road. If Adnan is trying to file in federal court a petition for writ of habeas corpus, he might have to use what's known as a schlup actual innocence gateway. And without getting into the details, that focuses upon all evidence, including not only trial evidence, but evidence gathered after the fact. He could also file what's known as a petition for writ of actual innocence in Maryland courts. And so by itself, this evidence wouldn't prove that actual innocence standard. But along with other evidence like lividity, Christie's class, Mm -hmm. everything else we've learned since the fact Jay's changing stories, it could be used as part of a package of evidence to show his actual innocence. All right. So we've got one more big kind of section to talk about um, before we wrap up this episode, and that is uh, more information about lens crafters. And the QRI uh, folks tracked down Thomas Precht, who worked for decades at lens crafters as a lab manager. Uh, and it's interesting what he had to say about Dawn. So let's talk about that. Yeah, we'll back up for a bit. I mean, this this whole documentary series is called The Case Against Anon Sayed. The focus is on Anon and the case against him. But it, like Justin says in episode four, this is the first time really where in terms of his case and his legal strategy, he's ever been in position to turn on the offensive. And that's what they're, they're, well, they were starting to do. So it's not the focus documentary, and it shouldn't be, but they did want to, they did at least have a little bit of coverage of like possible future routes. Again, it's not part of the case against Nansaya, but it's part of um, his case that would come out at trial, theoretically, if and when it never happened. And the Linscrafter stuff is important because that's where, of course, Don worked and Don's alibi. And it was his mother who was the general manager of the stories out that day, so that alone raises the question. And one thing the QRI folks, the investigators wanted to look at was like, how much weight should we put on that time card? Like, how much do we know about Don being at work? Was he really there? And so to address that, they went out and talked to a lot of Linscrafter's employees and a lot of people who were at the Hunt Valley store, which is where Don was, not his main store, not the one Hay was at, but the store he was at on the day of the 13th. So this guy, they also spoke to a lot of folks in corporate, right? And uh, Susan, you got a chance to look at some some of the report or all the report? I don't know. Yeah. So this is like a, you know, it's a complicated issue. And it's complicated by the fact that um, QRI decided to publish in the Wall Street Journal an article on the findings that did not like reach conclusive results. Because there's tons of things in any investigation you find that are like, that could be interesting, but like we ran down every lead here. We haven't figured anything out. Like the helicopter guy or the sis, the woman who worked at the, the porn store. But they also included uh, the section on Don's time card and a conclusion that it was valid or could not have been forged or fabricated. I do not believe that their research actually supports that conclusion. 
one thing they did look at, so there's a lot of issues about with time cards and why they've you know been suspected as not possibly being genuine over the years. And one of them was explored by Bob Ruff on his uh, podcast, Truth and Justice, and has to do with an issue involving associate IDs. So basically, on Don's time cards, we've got a bunch of time cards from the store he usually worked at, the one over at Owings Mills. And then we have one time card from Hunt Valley, where he worked two different days that week, the 13th, the Wednesday, the day that Hay went missing, and then that Saturday. And the associate number listed on those two cards is different. One theory was that the time cards could not be accurate because the associate numbers were not the same, and each employee only has one associate number. I, th- I think that the QRI folks actually did a very thorough job in conclusively showing that's not likely to be the case. And in fact, there's nothing odd about the associate numbers here. Every employee would only have one associate number, but the number shown on those cards is not the associate number that is the concern, the one that you can only have one of. So, Oh, okay. This is a different kind of number, numbering system. Yeah, it's just the store number. So this is not the ultimate like store's identification system of which you really could only have one. So yeah, I don't think that is actually significant evidence of anything that's unusual about the cards. And I think QRI's research very thoroughly shows that as well. Um, the other issues with the time cards were not addressed by the investigation. Um, the big one for me has to do with the fact that on Don's Hunt Valley time card on that Saturday that he worked, the system doesn't add up. Basically, the number of hours Don supposedly clocked in for is added up wrong and total hours worked. The number of actual hours should have been 3.8 and the total is shown as four, which doesn't make any sense in how the system worked. It didn't happen any other time on any other time card we have for any other employee. One thing software is good at is adding numbers. So that's a very clear indication that someone manually entered that number. And there's no reason why someone should have manually entered it. And in fact, some of the employees that the QRI folks talked to actually pointed that out. Um, they were shown this and they said, well, to me, that looks like that was manually entered. Uh, managers could manually enter on that line. Yeah. And no one at Lundscutter's corporate was ever asked about this discrepancy in the time card. So to me, effectively, it's never been investigated. We have people, the empl- like low-level employees on the record saying, yeah, that looks like it's, it was manually entered. And then we have no one from corporate who was able or asked to address it. And there's another issue with the time card as well has to do with the fact that on the Saturday the 16th, Don worked at both stores. He worked like in the morning for a few hours at the Hunt Valley location. And then that afternoon, he worked at the Owings Mills location. Now, there are only 23 minutes between the checkout at Hunt Valley and the check-in at Owings Mills. And I think at least like three of the employees that we were talked to, like point this out as being like extremely weird. They're like, it's impossible basically, like maybe like theoretically. Because, like, the fastest you could possibly drive between the two locations is, like, 23 minutes. But getting from the car to the store at each place is going to take you a good, like, minimum five minutes on each end, probably. Maybe maybe less if, like, you're literally sprinting. But as one employee said, like, Don was never the type to be in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Like, I mean, I, I – so if we're talking about discrepancy of maybe 10 minutes – Maybe if he was speeding a bit. I mean, I haven't done the route. I, that. They were all very, like, the employees were like, how is See, that even possible? We need, a, we need a field trip. You and I got to do this now. I mean, that's Well, the, the drive the drive might be doable. Like, the, it's cutting it close, but the drive theoretically could be done back then. Again, you can't test it now because the roads have changed. But the big problem was it was a Saturday. So especially at the Owings Mills end, you're going to have to park behind, like, all the customers there on a Saturday afternoon shopping. So you can't get a spot close to the door, presumably. And even if you do, you still have a walk to get to the store itself. And that's the part they were like, I think every employee that I spoke to who, like, had seen that was like, uh, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense. 
And then there's the final bit that we do here on the show, and that's that, like, there's no reason for Don to have worked that day because we know that Kerbeam, the manager, um, he, uh, they described him as a very honest, like, upright, like, he was a very straightforward guy, would not have been lying about his own hours. He recorded him working all the hours there, so there was no one that needed to be filled in by Don. For that Wednesday. Yeah. For January 13th. And SH from Hunt Valley also comes into this, and this is a guy who basically kind of came forward after the first episode aired. Um, and the investigators checked him out and checked out his story, made sure he worked there. He was he was who he said he was. Um, I basically didn't really- sleep for that whole, like, Monday, Tuesday. When I like, was frantically <laughs> finding it. Like, dude, like, it was down to the wire. Like, I've... He was weirdly hard to find. Like, I knew who he was. I knew, like... Oh, that's right. Oh, you were helping find him. I forgot about Oh, my that. God. Like, I finally, finally got him. It, like, it was, like, like 9 a.m. on the Tuesday or something. But, like, I finally got him and i'm like amy call so yeah anyway they found him and last minute they were able to get him on the show i flashed back to a conversation that myself him and another co-worker in Lindstrom had during the smoke break when he told us originally that she was missing i remember as clear as day like his hands had scratch marks and bandages going around up towards his breast off the scratches were more down towards his mouth he just said that it was something from working on his car but I think it's worth noting that, like, there were uh, this is a very abridged and condensed version of the entire investigation. There were a lot of employees spoken to, and some of those employees had also had very possibly important um, stories about time cards and how they may have been adjusted right. and how who may have been adjusting them. But for various reasons, one of them being a lot of the stories are inherently not the kind that have corroboration. They did not include, whereas SH did have some corroboration he was able to, that made him seem like an interesting person to include in the documentary. Mm, yeah, yeah. There, there are some other folks out there who, I mean, like we continue to keep in touch with because what they're saying sounds like it could be really important, but it's hard to kind of verify it at this point. And also there is, there is the, I mean, there is the chance that, you know, maybe there's some misremembering and memory creation. Yeah. So there's that too. But believe me, folks, even uh, when I saw Amy last week at the, um, sorry, in Baltimore, you know, even she said she's, and I, and the folks from QRI, the investigators were there too. Uh, and all, everybody's like, we're not done. We're still, we're still investigating. <laughs> so, you know, we're going to continue to see where this goes. Now let's talk a little bit about this plea deal and then, you know, where we are today right now. Kind of, you know, it's it's painful now to look at it, knowing that we recently lost in the Court of Appeals decision because Adnan was offered a plea deal. He was offered a plea deal, and I, we've known about this for a couple of months, but they've been going back and forth for a while. He's offered a plea deal that if he pled guilty and served four more years, that would be it, you know, and that the state and both sides would withdraw their appeal from the Court of Appeals and kind of end it there. Now, when Adnan talked to me about it, he said to me, he's like, it's not a matter of the four years. He's like, I don't care. I'll, he's like, I'll serve four more years. Uh, he, he said, I just cannot stand up and and take responsibility for something I didn't do. He's like, I can't say I'm guilty. There are things I take into consideration. It's just what they're offering is just so bad, you know, it's so unreasonable. They're going to want me to stand in court and say, listen, I did it. I lied to my mom and dad. I lied to Sarah Koenig. I lied to Ravia. I lied to Amy Byrne. When I was a kid, they threatened to take away my future, take me away from my family, take away the opportunity I would have to go to school or get married and have kids, just to have my freedom, you know, and they make good on that threat. Now it's a lot different, you know, that's because I don't really have anything they can take away from me anymore. 
So for him, it was really the, and, and they explore this in the documentary. He talks also about how even when he brought it up to his mother, um, he could tell that she was like, no, wait, because she is a fighter. And also even Adnan was like, you know, this is, I can't, and he's like, I can't stand up in a court of law and say that. It's just not, it's not true. And I also, I just can't do that. And by the way, uh, I also want to, and this is, I'm specifically relaying this because Adnan asked me to specifically tell everybody once this became public, he said, people are going to ask whether or not, I'm sorry. He said, people are going to ask whether or not I regret not taking the plea, given that we just lost. And he said, tell them I don't. He said, I don't, because in that moment, that was the right thing to do. And he's right. So, you know, it just means that a different outcome is, is meant to happen. So, but it's not easy. It's not easy because it took 20 years to get the state to the table to make a plea. Anyway. All right. Sorry, Susan. And there's still hope. No, it's, 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 it's a hard, like, that's just, it, these are the hardest conversations to have with clients. I mean, guilty or innocent, especially the innocent ones, because, I mean, end of the day, it doesn't, it's like he says on the show, like, yeah, you want to fight it, but, like, at what point is fighting it not more important than actually having a chance at a life? I've told all the guys we were, like, all the people on the show that we worked with, like, I would never for a moment judge them if they took a guilty plea and they got them home. Because to me, getting them home is the goal. Proving their innocence is important and ultimate medication. But like, you know what? Forget that. Like, end of the day, what matters most is bringing them home. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, we do have, um, I hope everybody tunes in for this week's addendum. We're going to have Justin Brown on and we're going to talk in depth more about the um, this result that came out of the Court of Appeals and what what the plan is, what is, what is he doing going forward? Uh, and he has a whole plan of action. <laughs> so believe me, it's not the end of the road for Adnan Sayed or any of us on this case. We're going to continue to continue to litigate it and fight it and do what we can. All right. Well, thanks so much. And we'll be back for an addendum that I think we're taking a bit of a break maybe before we start a new series. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to get back into it. And then you've got the rest of this year with Undisclosed coming back week after week with a lot of different cases. All right, guys, thanks for tuning in.